what was it like being in space? I think the closest that anyone can actually experience it on the ground or on Earth is uh, if you're in an IMAX theater in the front row or close to the front row with surround sound, but that doesn't capture everything. That only captures part of the visual. It doesn't capture being weightless. It doesn't capture actually orbiting the Earth once every 90 minutes. This is Bunny Dunbar, a former NASA astronaut who now works as a professor of aerospace engineering at Texas A&M University in the U.S. She belongs to an exclusive group of a few hundred people who have actually gone to space. Only 12 people, all men, actually walked on the moon, all within the short period of time between 1969 and 1972. Yet the first moon landing, which took place 50 years ago this month, has inspired thousands of people around the world in so many ways. Uh, looking down at the Earth and then being able to look back out at deep space. I think it's uh, an experience that's not only physically different, uh, but allows you to have a bigger picture of where we are in our universe. Uh, Earth is very small, and we only have a finite number of years on the Earth to make a difference. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Dunbar still vividly remembers her experience of the first Apollo 11 moon landing. Well, I think I was very fortunate in that I actually was in uh, university at the time when we landed on the moon on July 20th in 1969. I was in uh, between my sophomore and junior years. It was summer, obviously, and a number of us uh, actually traveled 30 miles to the nearest color TV. Of course, the landing was in black and white, but uh, where I lived had only marginal TV coverage. And we were, of course, all in engineering at the University of Washington. So we all got together in one car. We drove out to Kennewick, Washington, where one of our friends had a family with a TV, and we sat down and watched the moon landing. The spectacular scenes had a profound effect and became a great source of inspiration for her to pursue a career in engineering. She was a private pilot and served several years as a flight controller at the Lyndon B. Johnson Space Center, and finally took her first space flight in 1985 and went on to log 50 days in space on five shuttle missions. It might have been science fiction in the beginning with H.G. Wells and Jules Verne, but it excited me. It made me want to learn. And then finally, when President Kennedy said we were going to the moon, I knew it could be real. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. So I wouldn't be sitting here talking about my own spaceflight experiences if it hadn't started with a spark of inspiration uh, many decades ago. Humanity has the moon landings to thank for a lot. But what exactly? What impact did going to the moon have on us, and why did we stop going there? And when, and who, will be going back next? If we look forward 50 years from now to 2069, a century after Neil Armstrong first put his foot on the moon, what role will the moon play in space exploration? These are some of the issues we'll be exploring in this new five-part podcast series, To the Moon and Beyond, from the conversation.
We'll be hearing from academic experts around the world, from scientists, engineers and psychologists to lawyers and historians, all who've dedicated their lives to studying the wonders of space. You're listening to To the Moon and Beyond, a new global collaboration between different editions of the conversation around the world, from the US, UK, Australia, Canada, South Africa and France. I'm Miriam Frankel, science editor at The Conversation UK. And I'm Martin Archer, a space plasma physicist at Queen Mary University of London. And we'll be your hosts as we take a look at the last 50 years of space exploration and the 50 years ahead of us. Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. I think it's uh, an experience that's not only physically different, but allows you to have a bigger picture of where we are in our universe. And no other country has undertaken a lunar landing program, basically because it's still hard, it's still very expensive, and at least as an argument of whether it's worth doing or not. My wish is that this should be an international endeavor rather than a necessary competition. Spreading across the solar system is the same thing to do. It's both a smart thing in terms of making us more resilient as a species, but I also think this is a way of opening up the potential of humanity. We have a liftoff, liftoff on Apollo 11. So let's start with Neil Armstrong and that giant leap he made for mankind 50 years ago. I sometimes like to think about what it would have been like for him to put his foot down on the ground for the very first time. And, you know, it seems like it would have been an adrenaline-fueled experience of excitement mixed with fear. But I'm not sure it was like that for Armstrong. He was very calm, cool, collected, measured and, and modest. Well, I mean, this is something you see a lot from astronauts. You know, most astronauts have come from this um, sort of fighter pilot, test pilot route. And you don't want people that get too excited, (laughs) that get too scared. These are very controlled, measured people who follow procedures in the the most dangerous or excitable times. So actually, I, I cannot put my head inside Neil Armstrong's, not only because of the experience he had yeah. of sort of landing on the moon, but just because I haven't lived that life. I, I'm not that sort of person. I think it's really hard to, to try and imagine what it, it's like. It is, exactly. It is very hard. And it seems quite a mysterious thing. And I had a look at, his, at the biography First Man by James Hansen to get some clues into what might have been going on in in his head. And, you know, he did have some fears. He was really worried about not putting his foot on the moon, but about the actual last bit of the descent. And so he he said on a 10-point scale of worrying, uh, walking on the actual surface of the moon was about a 1, whereas that final descent was a 13. Well, as well, because um, when they did all the simulations of him having to manually land it, he'd always land it with too little fuel to be able to actually get back. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that I think that was a, a bit of a worry because he did actually have to go in manual again because it was going to be too dangerous with the with the site that they'd originally planned to go down on. Right. But so then I thought that must have been the moment then when he actually landed. That was that kind of super exciting moment. The eagle has landed. Yes. So I looked into, in the biography, basically, um, it says that the only thing he can remember feeling is, so far, so good. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Roger, Tranquility. We copy you on the ground. Our colleague Jonathan Gang from the U.S., who spoke to um, the former astronaut Bunny Dunbar, asked her what she thought it would have been like for Armstrong. 
I think the experience for space exploration has some common elements among everyone that flies, but each individual has the, their own experience to relate. So I really can't speak for Neil Armstrong, except what he has written, what he has said, and the fact that he went back into academia after he flew to help teach about aeronautics, to help inspire other young people to, to build rockets, to build spacecraft, and to fly into space. I think generally speaking that all of my colleagues and I do return with this bigger picture feeling is that, um, you know, the Earth is four and a half billion years old and our, our solar system is, uh, and the universe is quite a bit older than that. So, you know, ensuring that we continue to explore, that we invest in science and engineering is important for us to really understand our, our place in this big universe and using that knowledge then to to move forward, uh, not only to better our lives, but to better that part of our understanding of our place in the universe. Sounds like we could do with a bit more space exploration if we are to get people to care about the planet. And considering how much technology has advanced in the 50 years since the last moon landing, I find it quite insane that we haven't been back or gone further. I mean, we did go back kind of during the Apollo era. Apollo sure. 11 wasn't wasn't just it. I mean, it went all the way till 1972. So they had six other missions. Of course, the ill-fated Apollo 13 um, just did a round trip of the moon. They didn't actually get to, to land. So th- there was that sort of sweet spot of time when, when people were going to the moon. But yeah, it's, there's not been very much in terms of uh, crude things to the moon and, and very limited actual because sort of robotic missions as well. To find out why NASA stopped sending humans to the moon, we spoke to John Logston, director of the Space Policy Institute at George Washington University in the US and a former member of the NASA Advisory Council. He is also the author of many books, including After Apollo, Richard Nixon and the American Space Program. By defining Apollo as a race to the moon, once you win the race, there is no strong urge or compelling reason to continue to race. You've already won. And that there was that sense, not only within NASA and within the White House, but in the general public. The, the television networks, which had live kind of minute-by-minute uh, minute coverage for Apollo 11 and Apollo 12, by Apollo 13 was not covering the missions anymore in, in great detail. So there was a sense that the public attention and the political rationale for keeping going uh, had had very quickly dissipated. I find it surprising that Americans got bored so quickly within just three years of, of watching these moon landings. Though, according to Logston, that wasn't the main reason the Apollo program stopped. Space leadership has never been a goal fueled by public interest or public opinion. It is a, uh, a decision by the country's leaders that being uh, in an advanced position in space is important to the interests of the United States. So even during Apollo, uh, less than half of the American public were in strong support of it. Conducting a, an ambitious space program depends on the judgments of the country's leadership in the White House, in the Congress, and in, in kind of the elite segment of the country, uh, not, not on broad public opinion. Strangely, other countries didn't follow either. 
the only country that tried to compete with the United States in sending humans to the moon was the Soviet Union, uh, which did finally in 1964 decide to carry out a lunar landing program, developed a rocket uh, called the N-1, uh, developed a lander, trained a crew, but they could never get the rocket to work. There were four test flights and four failures. And after those four failures and after uh, the United States had successfully gotten to the moon several times, the Soviet Union gave up its lunar landing program. So it was on December 12th, 1972, that it was Gene Kernan, commander of NASA's Apollo 17 mission, who was the last person to leave the surface of the moon. This is Gene, and I'm on the surface. And as I take man's last step from the surface, back home for some time to come, but we believe not too long into the future, I'd like to just let what I believe history will record that America's challenge of today has forged man's destiny of tomorrow. And as we leave the moon and Taurus Littrell, we leave as we came, and God willing, as we shall return, with peace and in hope for all mankind. Godspeed the crew of Apollo 17. There were other missions planned, though, uh, but Apollo 18 through 20 were all cancelled due to budgetary constraints and the danger. The people running Project Apollo, particularly in Houston, were very aware, even before Apollo uh, 13, of how risky each mission was. So there, there were people in, in very senior levels in NASA who were saying, even after Apollo 11 and Apollo 12, you know, we've done what we were asked to do. Let's quit while we are ahead and before we kill anybody. And then Apollo 13 underlined the risks of the mission. Okay, we've had a problem here. This is Houston, say again, please. That's right. Yeah, we saw with Apollo 13 um, the dangers of, of spaceflight. And even in that era, you know, the 60s and 70s, we were only really starting to find out about space radiation and potentially uh, the, the damages that could have been done by that. And there were really some near misses in the Apollo era. That's right. And John Logston says it is because of these dangers and, and the costs involved that man hasn't returned to the moon since 1972. You know, both President George H.W. Bush and President George W. Bush proposed in the United States to return, and that didn't happen. And no other country has undertaken a lunar landing program, basically because it's still hard, it's still very expensive, and there uh, at least is an argument of whether it's worth doing or not. I mean, the United States is currently embarked on returning to the moon on a, on a fast schedule, but there are still arguments of the justification for going given the costs. But what about the science? Surely additional missions could have carried out crucial research too. Interestingly though, science doesn't seem to have played a big part in the Apollo program at all. And in fact, Apollo 17 was the only mission that actually included a scientist. Apollo was never about science. Kennedy uh, promised his science advisor, Jerome Wiesner, he would never justify moon program in scientific terms. And, and Wiesner said, all right, I will not 
kind of be the opposition. I will not lead the scientific community in opposition to the program as long as you make it clear it's not about science. So that was an agreement that was made in, in basically May of 1961 and carried out. So uh, it, it was a demonstration of American capability. And in those terms, I think it was a remarkable success. Science may not have been the focus of the Apollo missions, but there were a number of scientific and technological breakthroughs which came out of this groundbreaking space program. Yeah, and to find out what we actually learned from the Apollo moon missions, I spoke to Daniel Brown, an associate professor of astronomy and science communication at Nottingham Trent University in the UK. So one of the important things is to realize that actually before we set foot and got really close up to the moon, we weren't completely sure about the uh, geology in detail of the moon. So one thing that sounds quite surprising now, if you look at the moon and you see these, these craters, where do they come from? Are they volcanic or are they, as we now all know, meteor impacts? That's one thing that was uh, found by actually going up close, analyzing the geology, uh, taking photography close up in orbit and then in situ has really helped us to understand the origins of the craters and clarify that because it was definitely not clear at that point. Hmm. Has, has that in any way helped us um, work out how old the moon is? Indeed, because at that point, what you can then do is use the surface of the moon as a, as a blank canvas in a very simplistic way and assume there's a certain amount of bombardment coming. And then you can start to then see, well, if all the areas were equally old, all areas would have the same amount of bombardment. Hmm. They don't. So they don't have the same amount of craters, then they're differently old. That's the simplest way. It becomes very much complicated because in the early ages of our solar system, we had more of these rocks bombarding us than in the later one. But again, visiting the moon has helped us to uh, date things because we could get samples. We could actually see the chemical composition as well, and then see that the moon, for example, is has undergone processing. So um, a lot of material has been melted, remelted, and there's a, a definite sign that it's not something that has just been formed, primordial, but it has undergone several changes and uh, evolution, in a sense, from a geological term. Again, one clear sign of what we could learn by actually visiting it and analysing and getting samples back to Earth as well. So, Martin, how old is the moon, actually? Well, we think it's about 4.5 billion years old, so nearly as old as our planet. And the, the hypothesis of, of quite how it formed uh, is really quite interesting. Based on the evidence, um, the best scenario is that there was uh, another planet about the size of Mars and that hit the very early Earth when it was still, you know, mostly quite molten. And, and that's what caused the moon to form. So actually it would have shed a load of the Earth's material out into space around it. And eventually that probably coalesced mm. into what we now know as the moon. Thanks. It's nice to have an expert in the studio. I also asked Dan Brown about what technological inventions came out of the Apollo missions. For example, it's often said that Teflon was born out of the space program. Teflon is a beautiful example of a myth because Teflon oh. has not come out of the uh, Apollo moon missions or NASA. And another beauty is Velcro as well. They're sort of the two main flagships of these myths that are out there. So Teflon uh, predates it quite substantially. 1938, Teflon was invented by right. DuPont, by Roy Plunkett. And Velcro in the 40s. 
by a Swiss chap called George de Mistral. So these two guys, so much earlier, developed that. How can people believe that? Um, because it has found so much use in the program. So Teflon, for example, as something uh, that's incredibly heat resistant, curiously invented as a refrigerating agent <laughs> <laughs> through pure chance, then discovered that it's uh, incredibly heat resistant, is something that is essential for a lot of um, equipment that then comes back again because it undergoes immense heating and friction. So in that part, you need something that's incredibly heat resistant. So it's massively used. There are, however, some important inventions that did come out of these missions that you might not have heard about. I certainly hadn't. I think there are quite a few and some that are quite, uh, quite curiously interesting. One is probably everyone has that at home. So you think you want to hang up your picture, you want to just drill a hole for the hook, so you go uh, into your uh, cupboard, get out your cordless drill, and that's something that has come out of the Apollo program. We were talking about beforehand how it's important to gather samples and things and drill into the rocks and bring that back from the moon to analyze and the amount of science we gained from that. Imagine now you would have had to take a drill and the extension lead and start carrying it around very bulkily to these rocks. So to access these samples, NASA required a cordless device that was lightweight and easy to transport. And that's essentially what we've got now from Black & Decker and other devices that allow us to use these drills and uh, similar things. And that's where NASA approached Black & Decker and asked, could you help us uh, develop a chargeable drill device that is lightweight that astronauts can carry along. Bear in mind, this had to also be transported to the moon and every kilo is vitally precious because you don't want to waste things. According to Daniel Brown as well, other cool discoveries that you might not have heard of have actually helped save many lives. The mission required extreme heat protection and the advanced heat resistant textiles used on board the mission. Eventually, they found their way back to firefighting crews. The same is true for lightweight breathing equipment developed for astronauts. Before the Apollo missions, many firefighters had breathing gear that was very bulky and heavy. In some cases, they would even leave it behind as it was so exhausting to carry. Given all this, I asked Daniel whether, on a purely scientific and technological basis, it was actually worth going all the way there. It's a challenging question and one that you will get probably different answers from slightly different people. To some extent, a lot of discoveries have come out of this and uh, a lot of things have found uh, a lot of usage and uh, promotion through these um, space missions and moon missions. Many people though currently say that we would be struggling to illustrate that going to the moon or going into space generates enough discoveries. I'm not one of them. I think that our discoveries and our technological advances have been uh, informed and supported along the way. What do you reckon, Martin? Do you think it was worth it? Well, I don't think we should think of it in terms of what we've actually materially got out of it, whether it's the scientific discoveries that have come within only 50 years, right? Or the technology that's been developed. You know, you've got to be doing this stuff for 
the potential that might come out uh, and by doing lots of different things and you know this is not just goes for space it's just like all science uh, and engineering and stuff like that um, you don't know what you're going to get out but unless you try you're not going to make those big leaps in technological discoveries in in discovering how how the universe works and how that might eventually become useful but I think it has been such a, an important tool in um, captivating the public you know over these 50 years and, and will continue to do so. For, for that benefit alone, I think it's been fantastic. Yeah, indeed. I think there have been signs, though, that astronaut is not a, as popular a profession now for young people as it was. Well, I think, yeah, they're probably thinking about more attainable things. But that might change because 50 years on from the moon landings, we're now in a situation where a number of countries are talking seriously about going back to the moon and putting people there. And we will be exploring this new space race in the future episodes of this podcast. But we also asked former astronaut Bunny Dunbar how things might be different if we went back to the moon today. Uh, The physics hasn't changed. The technology is radically different. Our first use of a computer actually was on the moon landing. Uh, Anybody's use of a first computer wasn't in our home. It wasn't in our our smartphones. It wasn't in our refrigerator. That was the pathfinder for computers, both in mission control and in Apollo. That technology has grown considerably. So going back to the moon, uh, we have new methods of attitude control, of guidance and navigation, of communication, using lasers for communication, for example, new materials. So we're going back to a place we've been, but with radically different uh, technology. And what helped to move that technology forward was actually that first trip to the moon. That's right. If you think back, you know, in terms of the communication stuff she mentions, you know, you're talking about technology that is way worse than like 3G, which we complain about, you know, on our phones uh, to get to a, a level where we're using lasers, essentially very similar to like fiber optic broadband. So there's there's potential of getting tons and tons of information sent back in the future. And, you know, all the stuff about navigation as well. I, th- I think it's definitely going to make things better, but also cheaper and safer. Well, the new technologies, you know, from a a person who's been a spacecraft engineer, I helped build space shuttle is that we have, um, you know, lighter metals, stronger metals. We have thermal protection systems that were optimized after the space shuttle program to make vehicles reusable, uh, new propulsion systems, computer displays. Uh, We had computers running the Apollo vehicles, but we still had switches and dials for the crew to interact with. And now we've got computer displays we call glass cockpit. Well, Dunbar also says that in the future, astronauts will be able to land on the moon using systems that are reusable. The lunar lander will uh, relay back and forth to an orbiting space station around the moon called the Gateway. Uh, So we're using the technology to really put a footprint back on the moon where we'll stay for a long period of time. It will be the this generation's Antarctica research station where we will use it not only to learn about the moon and Earth because it's a great vantage point, but we'll also be able to exercise the technologies necessary uh, for us to go on to Mars. I find this fascinating, and I take it you could probably do a lot more science too. I mean, Martin, what, what kind of scientific experiments would you like to do on the lunar surface? Well, so as a as a person who's not really a geologist or things like that, I don't really know what the interesting things are to do, like physically on the moon. But I certainly know 
that the moon would be a great place to put a ton of telescopes, right? Particularly on the far side, you can do like tons of radio astronomy uh, without any of all of the signals that we send out from our phones, from our televisions, all that sort uh. of stuff, contaminating the signals. And of course, you've got no atmosphere as well. So actually, you're able to, to see more of the spectrum that's not being scattered off of the top of our atmosphere. And having that kind of noise-free uh, view of the universe, I mean, what are some of the things that we could actually find out? I mean, the thing is, is we just don't know, right? There's 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 tons of stuff out there and the possibilities uh, are sort of quite wide open. If you talk to a specific, a specific researcher, they'll give you a completely different answer because they're looking for something very specific. But I think just the capabilities compared to like ground-based radio astronomy and, you know, we've only got limited capabilities with satellites. I think the moon is potentially a great place to, to start doing some observing. Yeah, and, and that might happen sooner rather than later, given that both private companies and space agencies like NASA are aiming to be back in the next few years even. Yeah, we'll be exploring <laughs> these developments in future episodes of To the Moon and Beyond. In the next episode, we'll be taking a look at how the moon landings in 1969 and the Apollo missions that followed were received around the world and what impact they had on humanity. In particular, we'll discover how going to the moon affected people's perception of the world and universe and our place within it. And why has that generated so many conspiracy theories? But as far as we can tell, generally in the US, um, belief in moon landing conspiracy theories runs somewhere in the region of 5 to 10%. So if we look at... Um, the data from France, um, 16% of uh, French people believe in moon-landed conspiracy theories, so higher than the UK and uh, the US, hmm. 20% in Italy. But what's really telling is that a recent poll in Russia put the figure as high as 57%. To make sure you don't miss this or any of the future episodes of To The Moon and Beyond, make sure you subscribe from wherever you get your podcast. You can also find all the episodes on theconversation.com where you'll find loads more articles from academics around the world marking the 50th anniversary of the NASA moon landings. And if you like this podcast, please give us a review on Spotify or iTunes. It really does help. And if you have any questions about the series, you can get in touch via email on podcast at theconversation.com or you can reach me on Twitter. I'm at Miriam Frankel. Yeah, and I'm on Twitter at Martin Archer as well. A big thanks to all the academics who spoke to us for this episode and to the journalism department at City University for letting us use their studios. Thanks to Jonathan Gang, Martin LaMonica and Zoe Jazz. To the Moon and Beyond is produced by Gemma Ware and Annabel Bly. Sound editing by Siva Thangaraja. I'm Martin Archer. And I'm Miriam Frankel. And you've been listening to To the Moon and Beyond. <laughs>